Chapter Fourteen of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Essen Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Portstead's Will. Robert came from his interview with Burton white and shaken, but refused to divulge to his sister what had passed between them. Don't you worry, Ursula, he said with a valiant attempt to reassure her. I'm still a free man. After fortifying himself with several brandy and sodas, he stumbled out upon the western terrace where Lord Meldrum and Mr. Clavering sat smoking in silence. Impersonal conversation had become an impossibility, and Mr. Clavering lacked the moral courage to introduce the subject that he knew lay heavy upon them both. For his part, he was tormented by the constantly recurring questions. What secret knowledge of the murder did Lady Ursula share with Robert? Did it concern Meldrum? Did Robert persist in his silence and hers in order to shield himself or Meldrum or whom? Mr. Clavering looked steadily at Meldrum, and he could not, would not, believe him guilty. Meldrum's eyes were fixed in reflection upon the setting sun. From the gardens below was wafted the sweet fragrance of roses and mignonette, and the only sounds that broke the tranquillity of the sunset hour were the cawing of the rooks in the long avenues of elms and beeches and limes that infiladed the park, or the gentle lowing of a cow from the meadowlands beyond. Nature was at peace if not those in the pilastered old ivy-grown manor. The beauty of the sundown was not lost on Robert Sylvester. "'Mel, old chap,' he began weakly, "'I'm in a deuce of a mess.' Meldrum, recalled from his abstraction, sprang up, and taking the boy by the arm, pushed him into a chair. "'Robert, you have been drinking,' remarked Mr. Clavering severely. Robert's heavy eyes blazed. "'Drinking? Confound it all! Wouldn't you drink if you had your neck in a noose and couldn't get it out?' Meldrum laid a restraining hand on his shoulder. "'Calm down, my boy. It's not as bad as that.' Robert's anger dried away in a burst of self-pity. "'I was always the unluckiest dog. The pater never had the ghost of a fatherly feeling for me, and Cecil's sanctimony was enough to drive anyone to the devil. And now I've got to hang for him.' "'You are not going to hang for him, Robert,' said Meldrum gravely. At this, Robert made an effort to pull himself together. "'Look here, Mel.' Ursula's been talking to you. I know she has. But don't you believe her. She doesn't know what she's saying. She is half crazed with worry and all that. What did she tell you, anyway? He demanded excitedly. Your sister told me nothing, Robert. Only asked me to save you. And I promised that I would. There was a new sternness in Meldrum's manner. But Robert did not observe it. You can't save me, he muttered. Nobody can. Why, great heavens, Mel! His flushed face turned ashen. It was my pistol that Cecil was shot with, my name on the plate. I did not know that, exclaimed Meldrum in horror and amazement. That's Burton's exhibit number one, said Robert, with a reckless, bitter laugh. Oh, he's got me right enough, and you can't save me, and Ursula can't. I shall save you for your sister's sake, said Meldrum in a sterner voice. Robert glared with peculiar rage at the man who proposed to aid him. "'You keep out of this mess, Lord Meldrum, or all. "'Well, you'll wish you had, that's all. "'I'm looking out for my sister, "'and I won't have any of your bally interference. "'I've blackened her life long enough, "'and if I choose to drop out of it,' "'his weak mouth quivered. "'That's my business, not yours.' "'With this he flung into the manor. "'Poor wretched boy,' sighed Meldrum. "'He's more than half right, Clavering. "'His father and brother were hard on him, beastly hard.' At that moment a girlish, white-clad figure hastened toward them from the gardens. "'Mr. Clavering,' called Elsie Baring, tremulously, "'was not that Robert who just went in?' It was Robert. He spoke compassionately. 
he thought it a pity that this once glad-hearted young girl should be made to suffer through misplaced affection for a graceless scamp for at best that was all that robert was miss baring said meldrum persuasively i think robert is in need of a little kindness the world is using him rather hard just now and a few kind words would mean a good deal to him elsie baring flushed faintly it was the first time she and meldrum had met since the morning she had practically accused him of knowing more of the murder than he should i did not suppose you would speak for robert she faltered and then stopped conscious of what she had said meldrum smiled painfully perhaps you have misjudged me miss baring he remarked quietly she looked up into eyes that met her squarely perhaps i have i hope i have she added impulsively and hurried into the manor later that evening lady ursula came to mr clavering and asked him for a loan of several thousand pounds that man belmont whom whom robert quarrelled with at the country club she explained shamefacedly and some other leeches indignation made her bitter have sworn at a warrant for robert's immediate arrest unless he can meet his debts to them i cannot help him she said hopelessly mr clavering assured her of his willingness to assist her in any way and forthwith wrote out the cheque he knew that lady ursula scarcely ever had ready money though the rents from the portstead tenantry should have been adequate and he understood that cecil had made these over to her without reserve at the time he settled the manor upon her he suspected that her father had left her but a mere pittance and he knew that he had practically disowned robert so this must explain the slenderness of her resources from childhood robert had always had the lion's share of her possessions and his drains upon her of late must have been frightful mr clavering had never ceased to blame the old earl for the lack of feeling a sort of refined brutality which he had displayed toward his two younger children both were of a warm-hearted impetuous nature so foreign to his and that of his heir that he was totally unable to understand them so sought to rule them with a rod of iron and failing laid all the fault at their door cecil's will is to be read to-morrow lady ursula was saying i should like you to be present at the reading mr clavering was rather flattered by the way in which she depended on him but he did think it a bit hard on lord meldrum whom she seemed to avoid and who was obviously wounded by it mary gray made herself rather unduly conspicuous that night mr clavering thought she insisted upon making friends with robert and finally drew him from the defiant taciturnity into which he had settled after elsie baron had tried in vain to convince him that she still believed in him she wished to be kind to him to show faith in him but it was easy to read the doubt in her mind and this robert resented mr clavering watched mary gray uneasily as she subtly led robert on to talk of himself his pleasures and pursuits and now again stealing at him strange sly little sidelong glances robert had drank just enough to make him very voluble when once he was started and not particularly discriminating in his choice of topics yet not the faintest flush disturbed the clear pallor of mary gray's cheek as he discoursed of his friends of the turf the demi-monde and even described in detail a recent champagne orgy at which he had stood sponsor and the bills for which were unpaid and likely to remain so until he said with his reckless laugh the estate is settled up mary gray simply smiled her pensive smile and encouraged him to talk on i say she's an uncommon jolly young woman by george she is he confided to mr clavering in a burst of enthusiasm as she wished him a smiling good-night and glanced back at him from the great staircase with big elusive brown eyes 
she's a minx a scheming minx admonished mr clavering indignantly old boy robert spoke with the easy authority of a man of the world you don't know a fine piece of women flesh when you see it and laughing in a superior way he went up to bed with blithe unsteadiness of gait in the morning a different mood held him he was dejected irritable and suspicious and vouchsafed no response to mary gray's bright good morning you are right mr clavering he said soberly that girl is an artful puss she was leading me on last night to make a bally ass of myself but what did she do it for eh i didn't say anything about his eyes rolled in fear about tuesday night did i no answered mr clavering severely your conversation was limited to men of evil reputation and women of none at all if you continue to indulge your appetite for drink i dare say that you will place yourself in an even more critical position than you are in now robert turned a sickly white and cast a curious furtive glance about this was becoming a habit of his when he was not sure where burton was you're right mr clavering he said again you may be a betty-fied old fogey but you're right about the drink i daren't trust my tongue after it i swear i'll keep my promise to ursula and not touch another drop lord meldrum who had overheard shook him warmly by the hand do so my boy he said earnestly before it is too late you owe it to your sister she has been good to you i know that mel tears stood in robert's eyes she's the best sister ever a fellow had and so help me i'm going to repay her the will of cecil john sylvester eighth earl of portstead was something of a surprise when read to the little gathering in the library mr clavering felt sure that it was owing to burton's insistence that the reading took place there in order that he might study the effect of the room on robert sylvester the great gloomy library had always been oppressive to robert it was doubly so now and mr clavering feared that he would not be able to remain but he finally pulled himself together and assumed an air of reckless indifference to his surroundings and to burton's keen inexorable eyes fastened upon him lady ursula sat beside her brother her arm resting protectingly about his neck as though she defied burton or anyone else to take him from her robert seemed to find comfort in her silent championship and now and then smiled at her feebly the late earl of portstead had been a shrewd business man and he left more wealth than mr clavering had dreamed of but his disposition of it was odd though consistent with his hard and implacable nature to robert his heir he bequeathed practically an empty title since the entailed estates without the means to keep them up would yield a very inadequate income but portstead had held out a straw of hope to his brother in a clause which stated that one-third of his personal wealth was to be held in trust until such time as said robert shall reform his manner of living and become an honorable and upright english gentleman in the event of his failing to reform said third of money was to pass to a training school for diplomats in which lord portstead had taken interest robert emitted a short bitter laugh as this clause in his brother's will was read by george he muttered aloud if that isn't cecil to the life strike a chap when he's down hush oh hush warned lady ursula placing her hand over his mouth and glancing in terror at burton to see if he had heard his expression told her that he had unto my sister the lady ursula sylvester resumed the solicitor after a shocked look over his gold-rimmed spectacles at robert i give and bequeath one-third of all personal property the mansion at belgrave square then followed an enumeration of two country seats one in sussex and one in yorkshire and of a castle in scotland 
but there were added so many stipulations and restrictions that she would be but nominal mistress of both money and estates. And, read on Sir Frederick Murray, these estates and lands thereunto pertaining are to be held by said Lady Ursula only so long as, here he paused impressively, so long as, and no longer, the said Lady Ursula shall continue to bear and be known by the name of Sylvester. Well, of all the outrageous, burst forth the irrepressible Robert again, but a warning gesture from his sister checked him. She, on the contrary, betrayed neither surprise nor indignation at this peculiar clause in the will, nor, indeed, did she display any emotion other than weary resignation. She apparently did not question her brother's right to dictate to her in death as he had done in life. But why, pondered Mr. Clavering, as he had pondered countless times, why should this high-spirited woman submit so tamely to the petty humiliations and selfish restrictions, for how else could they be considered, of a brother whose nature was so diametrically opposed to hers that there could be between them no bond of affection or even harmony? Yet Mr. Clavering was bound to admit that, however cold and hard, Cecil, Earl of Portstead, might have appeared to the world, he himself believed that he was actuated solely by a high sense of justice and right. With him the emotions had never spoken. His every act was the result of deliberation and was what he conscientiously believed to be right, in accordance with the rigid standard by which he regulated his own life and sought to regulate that of others. Knowing this, Mr. Clavering felt that his opposition to his sister's marriage with Lord Meldrum, an opposition which he had carried beyond the grave, must be founded on more than political enmity. Absorbed as he was in these speculations, he heard only vaguely what disposition was to be made of Lady Ursula's share in the event of her disregarding the will of her dead brother. But the name of the third beneficiary aroused him and set in motion a train of doubts and new theories. I give and bequeath, so read Sir Frederick Murray, unto Mavis Travers, sometime a resident of Teggiano, Italy, and later of Surrey, England, one-third of all personal property, the same to be held in trust, until the said Mavis Travers shall have come of age. Mavis Travers? The oddity of the first name struck Mr. Clavering at once, and conjured up the vision of a red-haired little fury, vigorously belaboring a sweating Shetland pony. Her nurse, the woman Elena, was an Italian. That Mavis and the one named in the will might very likely be one and the same. The identicalness of the first names, the fact that the Mavis he knew was also resident in Surrey, and that her nurse was of Italian nationality, could hardly be mere coincidence. But in any case, in what relation could the Earl of Portstead have stood to this mysterious child, whom he had named so conspicuously in his will? He, Mr. Clavering, had never heard of her before. He was sure from the amazement on Lady Pevensey's face and on that of the other listeners, including Robert, that they too never had. Yet she had met enough to Portstead to be made third beneficiary, and without proviso. Did Lady Ursula know of her existence? He recalled her unwillingness to have mentioned maid of Elena, or even admit her reality, and her subsequent agitation when he told her of the man who had accosted the woman and child. He believed that she knew well enough who Mavis Travers was, and she was so agitated now by this last clause in the will that she demanded that Sir Frederick reread it slowly. When he had finished, she burst into uncontrollable weeping, and Robert had to assist her from the room. Mr. Clavering went alone into the gardens with the name of Mavis Travers ringing in his ears. Who was this child from Teggiano, Italy, whom the Earl of Portstead had made his chief beneficiary, since she alone was hampered by no provisos, 
and yet of whose existence even the oldest friends of the family were ignorant. End of chapter 14